Even though you would sometimes disagree with him, he would listen. There are things that we can be doing right now to have open dialogue, to get public input, and to be able to make solid decisions for the state of Alaska. You know, politics, Mr. President, in my estimation, is a character test. Welcome to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail Tobin. I'm Mike Mason. Senator Tobin, how are you doing today? I'm okay, Mike. Thanks for asking. So today, Senator Tobin and I are joined by Dr. Lisa Parody. Since 2014, Dr. Parody has served as the Executive Director of the Alaska Council of School Administrators. Prior to joining the Alaska Council of School Administrators, Dr. Parody served as the Assistant Superintendent of the North Slope Borough School District. And prior to coming to Alaska, Dr. Parody was the Chief of Staff in the Wyoming Department of Education and at one time served as a Senior Policy Analyst in the Wyoming Governor's Office. Dr. Parody, how are you doing today? I'm having a great day. Thank you for having me. So I want to kind of begin at the thing that is the, uh, the, the thing that brings all of us together, and that is education policy and specifically education funding. Uh, Senator Tobin and I have been working with you and many others on uh, uh, legislation to increase education funding in the state of Alaska, and I'm still hopeful. I think Senator Tobin is still hopeful. You talk to a lot of people. Are you still hopeful? I am still hopeful. I'm optimistic, uh, I'm positive about the opportunities that are right in front of us in the next two weeks. And I think the people I represent, um, essentially school districts, are are feeling that there's still a great chance that we can get a BSA increase this session. So I want to ask about why. And I know why, because uh, Senator Tobin and I have sat around this table with a number of people, superintendents, teachers, some parents, even school kids, and every single one of them has spoken eloquently and passionately about what is going on in their school and in their community, and almost all of that comes down to a lack of funding by the state of Alaska for their local education system. There are there are factors that play in there, the national teacher shortage and staff shortage, inflation costs, and all of that kind of thing. From your assessment that you work for the, the, the people on the ground or with the people on the ground, what is the state of education in the state of Alaska right now? Such a hard question because I still really believe that we have exceptional educators across the board in Alaska. And I feel like we have folks who have decided to stay uh, here and serve students. Um, but the conditions are hard. And um, so I have a lot of admiration for those long-term educators who have made Alaska their home and have a commitment to our students, even in these kind of rough times. And I guess what I mean by that is the things that you said, you know, we haven't had a substantial investment in public education in so long. And when we have been up against a national shortage of educators and are in the worst crisis Alaska has ever seen in terms of educator shortage, when our inflationary costs are are so high and in some cases uh, 
much higher in our remote and rural areas where we have transportation costs that we haven't seen an investment in since 2016, 2015, 2016, um, when we have our students who are experiencing some of the most difficult problems um, against, you know, social, emotional challenges that they haven't um, had the kinds of supports in place to um, address those kinds of challenges. Uh, our, our statistics still remain um, really just impossibly difficult. Suicide rates, abuse rates, um, all of them. So, so you have all these pieces that come together to uh, build the puzzle of education. And unfortunately, I think um, the scales are tilting um, toward, uh, you know, we're, we're not, we're not getting ahead uh, in terms of supporting students. We're holding our own at best. Um, but I've been saying for the last couple of years, you know, we did um, more with less for many years, and now we're doing less with less. And the pandemic was almost like a final um, break to the system. Um, having said that, I want to say I think our educators were heroes during that time. They're great at problem solving. That's what they do. And so they just addressed it, flipped on a dime, tried to figure out how to best serve students. Still, you know, were momentarily considered heroes and then um, really got some backlash uh, unnecessarily, I think, from, from folks. Cause, because when you step back and think about what they did, it was, it was incredible. And all keeping an eye on the safety and well-being of our students. So education as a whole, I would, I would say is at a low ebb, um, but I think that we can, um, we can invest in it right now and we can support it in a way that it needs to be supported to best support our students. So one of the, the pieces that really drives the work here in the legislature and drives why we are advocating for increased funding for our schools is the education clause in the Constitution, which states the legislature is responsible to establish and maintain a system of public schools open to all students. So let me ask you, because you're the expert in the room, why don't we just have fewer school districts? Wouldn't that help reduce overhead and costs? We often hear in committee about these high administrative costs, these high overhead costs. And as the executive director of the Alaska Council of School Administrators, why do administrators matter? Well, thank you for that question, and um, they matter a great deal. You know, we're we're the largest uh, state uh, geographically, and um, even just from a common sense point, uh, a, a superintendent or a principal trying to cover more territory than they even do today. The example of where I was uh, assistant superintendent and acting superintendent on the North Slope was um, 89,000 square miles. Well, that is a lot for one person to cover on its own, and we have several examples of that. Uh, so I just think geographically is one reason, but more importantly, I think um, administrators are the CEOs. They're the boat captains. They're the folks who um, make the enterprise decisions. And in most communities, most school districts are 
in the top three employers. Um, and so I, I know in some cases, um, I think in Anchorage, maybe they're the top employer. And I know um, maybe in the Matsu, they're the second uh, uh, employer in the entire community. And so these folks are running businesses and their business is education. And their job is to ensure that we have the best educators in front of our students that our students can get from home to school and back safely through transportation, that they have the opportunities to receive, you know, medical care, uh, counseling, uh, whatever it takes to, to support that student to be successful. And I guess when we look at the actual data around um, administrators, we um, – See both in the data that is used by the Legislative Finance Office as well as the Department of Education Early Development, that we um, have a very small percent of the pie that goes to administration. I think it's 2% that goes to superintendents. And I, I don't quote me on this, but I think it's like five percent around um, principles and what we know is district stability from superintendent to principal makes a huge difference on our retention of teachers and because we're in the worst crisis we've ever been in uh, it's it's very important to have stable um, competent uh, leaders and principals and superintendents at the helm so that we can stabilize school districts for our for our students now I'll, I'll just say, one other thing, um, there's been some pushback by some that the census data it shows a, a different set of numbers. The reason for that is because they use different um, categories when they're measuring, but if you, which is comparing apples to watermelons. But if you compare apples to apples, um, you'll see that, again, that data supports that we're very administratively lean. Um, and I'll argue all day long about the importance of having leadership at the top, whether you're um, a small business or um, whether you're a school district. Having competent uh, leadership at the top makes a difference throughout the organization. And, and we can't consolidate school districts in Alaska um, and, and really save any kind of meaningful money. There's a study that was done in the legislative, um, I think, budget and audit um, that was a couple years ago, but I, I suspect it's still very current um, in terms of its findings, which really shared that the, about the most you could save would be a million to $2 million by consolidating districts. And the cost of doing that is ex- extensive, not just to... Um, administrative costs of doing that, but there are reasons um, that districts are divided the way they are, um, uh, that some harken back to um, some of our Alaska Native um, tribal relations. Uh, So once you open that can of worms, it's a complex, very, I think, long process it will also involve um, district boundaries that mm-hmm. have to be addressed and tax structures that have to be addressed. And at the end of the day, there's really no cost savings. And what we know is strong, stable leadership supports our kids and their outcomes. So um, really a case to be made that we should be investing in those individuals and in school districts um, to get where we're going. 
I think the important point to note here, because a million sounds like a lot of money, but when you look at the actual state budget for education, which is well over a billion dollars, a million really isn't significant cost savings. One of the pieces that really highlighted for me this session in hearing from Dr. Parity and from other education advocates is over the last 10 years, we've seen about 2,100 adults leave our classrooms. That means there's less than that many adults being active, keeping class sizes low, helping our students with guidance counseling, helping our students with instructional support. One of the pieces that I hope people recognize is the way Anchorage School District will be closing its budget gap this year. They have a thousand open positions. Anchorage School District right now has a thousand open positions and they will not be filling them. They are going to lose 1,000 adults from our Anchorage schools so they can close the budget gap because we have not significantly increased school funding since 2017. That is a lot of people. How are schools going to manage that significant loss? What's going to happen? You know, to be honest with you, if we don't see an investment, we, we may see schools not open in many cases. Um, you know, many school districts have a very, very small fund balance. Some have a deficit. They are, they've prepared their budgets this year with their school boards um, with the hope and prayer of of an increase. If they if that does not happen, I think we'll see significant cuts across the board um, in school districts. And you know, we're just reaching a point where something will have to be done, maybe in the court system. You know, if we don't have a significant investment, um, you know, the the losers are our students, our children, our future. And I I think school districts have cut, they're lean they're not filling positions. I don't know of a school district that has been fully staffed throughout the year. Um, school districts remain in a constant flow of recruitment. It used to be um, that we would have our recruitment season, you know, after December for a couple months, and you had job fairs where people used to come to the job fairs to get jobs in Alaska. That really doesn't happen at this point. Many of our districts are very reliant on international teachers and J-1 visas to fill their positions at this point. The, the, the hiring environment has shifted so dramatically, and um, if we don't see investment, um, I suspect that we'll just see significant shifts next year. And it's the worst-case scenario. It really is. Yeah, I think a lot about that fund balance conversation, we've heard from a few folks that schools have significant fund balances. And for those who don't know what a fund balance is, think of it as a school saving account. Uh, There is statute stipulations on fund balances. School districts can't keep more than 10% of a fund balance year to year. Any excess above that goes back to the state. So it's not that our schools are hiding away money or trying to save it for a rainy day. They really are trying to ensure they have cash flow, that they can make good decisions for next year, that they're preparing for maintenance issues or perhaps earthquakes that completely destroy uh, roofs and windows and equipment. Fund balances allow for that flexibility. And, and many districts don't even come close to the 10%. Mm-hmm. And um, in some cases, we have uh, districts that have a deficit fund balance. So you're exactly right. Those are um, in place. Um, and in some cases, 
say, for example, school bond debt reimbursement, there's a minimum required um, to be in a fund balance in order to be able to uh, maintain the bond. So um, there's there's a lot of scenarios around those, but I it's safe to say that there is no district that is um, flush, I guess, if you will, uh, particularly into 2025 where there will be uh, no remaining COVID funds. Um, we'll, you may have heard about the fiscal cliff, and we're going to be um, hitting that really hard um, in that year if, if we don't have an investment. And I know a lot of folks have said that our schools need to make hard choices, that they are businesses like ConocoPhillips is a business, although I don't think I've ever heard of ConocoPhillips CEO cleaning toilets like I know some of our superintendents <laughs> are doing Subbing. because, yeah, yeah that right. they can't hire support staff to do that type of work. Uh, I know here in Juneau, they're actually cutting special ed positions. I know in Fairbanks, they have closed schools already that many of our schools have already made really difficult choices. And similar to what you were saying, they've been doing more with less and they're now doing less with less. And that's uh, untenable to me considering our constitutional obligation to establish and maintain a system of public schools for all kids. Absolutely agree. Let's talk about the actual uh, education funding component of this. So uh, when uh, the Senate Education Committee was looking at uh, the best way to invest in public education, it became very uh, apparent right off that the simplest and most effective way to do it was through... And fair, the most fair. fair. ...was through the the, uh, base student allocation, which is essentially kind of the starting point for funding. So I don't want you to go through the presentation that you gave to the education <laughs> committees and to everybody. What was it called? Education Funding 101. I think it was like a 45-minute presentation. We, we yeah. don't have that. But like in its, in, in its simplest form, when we, uh, when we talk about the BSA and we talk about the increase that we are proposing, how does that trickle through to school districts? If you can kind of give us the 30,000-point the, the view on education funding, starting at the BSA. Thank you. Um, because of the constitutional duty that uh, Senator Tobin uh, addressed, the state has a, a duty to fund education, and um, the base student allocation is the mechanism to do that. And it essentially is a formula that was developed decades ago, and um, and I'll note, as a side note, has been reviewed extensively, um, most recently in, I think, two thousand. 15 by uh, Augablick and Paler and Associates, I believe, or Palick and Associates. Um, they did a, a, an extensive review and found that our formula, the BSA formula, is very fair, that there's a couple pieces that need to be updated, like cost factors, and I'll talk about that in a second. But on the whole, that it's operating well and it is a fair model. Um, the model, I think, when it was originally developed, took many years, um, and they finally came to a formula that then looks at all the different factors that education um, is uh, addressing, if you will. And through this formula, they apply um, those factors, say a special ed factor, for example, or 
forgot other factors. Um, there's vocational technology. There's yeah. a factor for district cost factor. Uh, there's a factor for intensive needs students, uh, which is federally mandated resources that go to students with low incident uh, disabilities or cognitive disabilities. There's a lot of things that go in to make the base student allocation or basic need for each school. Yeah, and so you go through each of those um, factors as you're calculating it, and the number that comes out is the base student allocation. And it's it's complex, but it's also, um, I think, fair because it's applied to everyone equally in, in, the, in the state. And so only real pushback at this point is the district cost factors around, like, who is the most expensive place to educate a student in in Alaska. And right now that um, is with Anchorage, but there's some sense in Anchorage that maybe that should be moved to Matsu. And and I think those are the kinds of things that it may be fair to take a look at. But the formula on, a, on, its, on its face is fair. And um, the reason it's appropriate to give the increase or an investment through the BSA is because it gives school districts the opportunity to be good stewards of the dollars. They're then able to plan like you would want any business to be able to do. They're able to invest in educators, in classrooms, um, with the knowledge and confidence that they will be able to continue to invest in them in the following year. What happens when you do a one-time, it's like an outside this formula. It's like a one-year grant, if you will. And so you have to question, is it prudent for an individual who's making those decisions to increase a salary of a teacher um, with one-time grant that you aren't confident you're going to get the next year? And so um, I think most financial people would say no. That is not prudent. Um, So for us, we want to give the confidence to school districts to say, yes, invest in that person to retain them in Alaska and have the opportunity to do that over time um, versus every year saying, well, I may have to pink slip you because I don't know if I'm going to get that one-time grant again. So there's there's a significant difference between inside the BSA, a permanent um, investment and a one-time outside, and both are appreciated. I mean, I don't want to sound ungrateful for any kind of support to public education, but but the permanent increase allows for districts to to be the kind of stewards that people expect from their school districts. Otherwise, you're making last-minute decisions. You're treating the people you're trying to retain not well. And today, people can go anywhere. Teachers can go to any state and become employed quickly. So for districts not to be able to um, confidently offer contracts, knowing the money's going to be there, is a real disadvantage to Alaska. I want to make a quick plug for our excellent podcast with Lon Garrison that really talks about this relationship between local communities their school boards, funding of their schools, and who ultimately is responsible to allocate the resource that school districts receive from the state fairly equitably, ensuring that money goes to the classroom, ensuring they retain good administrators, ensuring their pools are taken care of and their libraries are taken care of. 
it really does not rely within the state of Alaska to do that work. As Lon said very eloquently, we only meet for four months out of the year. And so we can't be the best stewards of the resources. It must be the school boards and the superintendents. But the, and you as the legislature, you know, y- you actually give that power to the school boards. Um, you you are responsible for education, um, but you delegate that power to the school boards and school boards listen to local control. And, and I think everyone listening understands the importance of local control and having that ability to make decisions at the local level about what's best for your students, your culture, your community, um, is something that Alaskans cherish. And, you know, we're at a point right now where that is all being compromised because we haven't had the investments we need. It's very neat to see the things happening in the Lower Kuskokwim School District with Euclid. It is exciting to see what's happening in Nome with the King Island and Nupiak Immersion Preschool and Kindergarten. These things happen because of local control. Absolutely. And they're excellent programs. And there are pockets of excellence across Alaska public education everywhere you everywhere you look. And I'm not sure we're the best at sharing those, but they are happening. And you gave two excellent examples. That is local control at its very best around our needs of students in those communities. So before we run completely and totally out of time, I want to... But Mike, we want to talk about schools and education and funding. (laughs) That's right. Uh, I want to talk about politics. (laughs) I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about (laughs) education. So as a a former reporter uh, that was outside of this building and this, this thing, I would occasionally, I would, I would see something and it'd be like, why in the world does something not happen? Because the, the inputs all seem so obvious. And now after many years in this building, it comes down to politics is mainly the, the, the obstacles that get in the way, or sometimes the thing that, that helps, you know, clear the, clear the way for something like that. You're in this building quite a bit. You talk to lawmakers, probably multiple times a day. Uh, You've been following all of this that we've been doing. Um, The politics in this building can be what? Challenging? Frustrating? (laughs) Uh, Yes. Infuriating? Um, You know, that's (laughs) such a great question. And I I love the politics because I think this is a citizen legislature and I have respect for everyone serving. Even if I completely disagree with someone, they're taking the time, they've, you know, made the commitment. And a mentor of mine once told me that everything in Alaska is political, except politics, and that's personal. And I really have found that to be true. The relationships that people make in the building with staff, with, um, you know, everyone serving is is a really it can be a really beautiful thing it also can be the word you said which are frustrating <laughs> sometimes infuriating but i i feel um we're still democracy we're still able to influence that's why i'm so optimistic that we can still get a bsa increase i mean we are people who can speak to people uh in the political realm and that's as you, as we all know, not everywhere. So it, it can be really beautiful at the same time, very frustrating. And Senator Tobin coming from staff position in into what is now 
where politics circles you almost every day, it, it's, it's, it's tiring, I would think, right? It can be, but it's also really empowering to know that those relationships really matter, that the connections you have to your community, to constituents, most importantly to your schools and to the educators that work in them, they empower you to go and be their voice, to be their champion I have loved serving as the chair of the education committee because I want to make space to hear the stories of those who are doing the on the ground work of helping our young people become full citizens. It is inspiring to watch and to learn and to listen about the state of education in Alaska. It has changed so much since I went to school, but yet it's exactly the same because the teachers all know their students' first names. The teachers know deep, intimate facts about the families and the community, and they're able to connect with those young people in a way that that just creates the safety net that we know everyone needs, that connects the threads that everyone depends on so that they are being fed, that they are receiving the socio-emotional support that we know is critical to their young brain development. It's fun to be a part of that again in a way that I find is very meaningful for my state, and it's a great way for me to be able to give back. Well, and I, I just would add, too, that our members are so grateful for you being in that position because you are a champion um, you're fierce, and uh, we're we're so happy that that's the case. I I think um, allowing for the conversations to be heard is a huge part of educating everyone in the building, and you're um, doing such a great job of that, and we're very grateful. Well, thank you. I want to make an observation before we go to our final question, and that is uh, during this conversation, which is uh, pushing 30 minutes now, not one point did we talk about a number, and in almost all of the educators and administrators and students, almost none of them ever talk about the number. They always talk about what the number will allow them to do in their school. When you go out and you talk to people in these hallways, they start talking about the number and it's the dollar bills. But what is kind of fascinating is that the people that are doing the work the number is secondary to what the number allows them to do. Does that make sense? And I think that that's very powerful and shows that people are in it for the education that they can provide and for the services they can provide and not so much for the dollar bills. I think that's an astute observation. The people I serve are, they're in it for the students. They're in it for their communities. They're in it to make a difference in young people's lives. Um, you, because if you, you, quite candidly, given the difficulty of these jobs right now, it would be hard to um, stay if you weren't, right? I mean, that's, that's, I think, what we're trying to say is we're fragile, you know, we're broken, and we need to be made whole and stable. And the people who are holding it together are focused on here's what we need to be able to do that. We want to improve our outcomes, but we have to have quality teachers to do it. And it's, you know, it's circuitous. It really is a little bit chicken in the egg. Let's invest, you know, in education and let's support our educators to stay and choose Alaska to come here because we're competitive again. And and at the end of the day, I think you're exact, your observation is exactly right. 
it, it really is about serving. What I keep thinking of, Mike, is the presentation we made together, all three of us, in Senate finance when the first bill hearing for Senate Bill 52, a bill to increase the base student allocation, was heard in that committee. We sat there and talked about how school funding is a policy choice. It is a decision that is political in nature, and it is what allows our school systems to have the resources to do the incredible work we know is needed and necessary to produce future doctors and future attorneys and future policymakers and future radio DJs. (laughs) We know that the resources we invest early on will come back to us tenfold or 15-fold or in some research like the Perry Preschool study, $31 for every dollar we invest in those early years will come back to us in increased wages and reduction of other state uh, support systems that may need to be paid out because folks don't have the skills that they need or didn't receive them in the education system. It is not necessarily about what hard number of what our schools require. I think One of the pieces that I hope people walk away with is the recognition that prior to statehood, we reimburse school districts for their costs. We just ask them, what do you need to do the work that you're doing, and we'll refund you. And after statehood, because we adopted the education clause, we said, what is the most equitable way to provide a public education system accessible by every child in our state? And we made a policy choice to use a formula to fund it, 1961. And that foundation formula, the very first formula, talked about how many schools a district needed, how many teachers would be required to provide quality education to those students, how many administrators were needed, and how do we make sure that those students are able to get to that school. That's when we made a choice about how we fund and what ways we fund our public education system. And that's the decision before us today. Well, it should be an interesting uh, week, uh, the the next uh, several days of the legislative session. So please uh, pay attention. And I know. And call your legislators and tell them to increase the base student allocation by as much as we possibly can afford. Indeed. Indeed. So, uh, Dr. Parody, uh, the, the question that I've been asking everybody uh, is, and here you go, if you could choose one person, dead or alive, they get a vote and they get to sit next to Senator Tobin on the floor of the Alaska State Senate. Who would that be? I think it would need to be a seasoned rural, either principal or superintendent, one of them, who can truly um, help others to see the challenges and the opportunities of public education. I think um, advocates like Senator Tobin do a remarkable job, but I would choose someone from that setting to be able to say, you know, here's what it really looks like. Here's what's happening. Um, And, and I could put lots of names on individuals, but I would choose that type of individual to sit on the floor and be a resource around what is, is really happening. And, and I would also close by saying, you just made a comment that I, I really um, uh, take to heart. Um, I've been doing, I'm an attorney by background I've been doing policy work for education for a very long time. I won't say how long, but (laughs) a very long time. Um, And in Alaska, I don't think I've had, I've been doing this job now going on 10 years, I don't think I've had 
a legislator say to my members, what would it take to do the job we're asking you to do? That's not the discussion. And, you know, at the end of the day, it probably should be. So with that, you have been listening to the Empty Office Podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail-Tobin. You can subscribe to the podcast on Substack and the Apple Podcast app. If you like what you hear, leave a review. That will help spread the word. And we also welcome your feedback. You can send me an email. My email is michael.mason at akleg.gov. My name is Mike Mason. Please be safe out there.